Hi, this is Greg Kilstrom. Welcome to season three of the Agile World, where we discuss customer and employee experience, organizational and workforce transformation, and how business can adapt and continually improve in an Agile age. The Agile World podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full stack technology services, talent services, and real world application. For more information, go to techsystems.com. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, you can go to my website at theagile.world and read my latest articles or get a copy of my latest book, The Agile Workforce, now available on Amazon and other retailers. My name is Greg Kilstrom, and I'm the host of the Agile World podcast. Welcome to a special episode of the show brought to you in partnership with Arlington Economic Development, where we discuss issues related to the workforce, the role of place in the future of work, and the role of the creative sector in a larger business context. We call this return on creativity. Today, we're going to talk about the challenges and opportunities that organizations face as they return to the office and how meaningful collaboration can transcend remote, in-person, and hybrid work arrangements. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Michael Barada, Master Trainer at Culture RX. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, Greg, thank you so much for having me on. I sincerely appreciate it. Yeah, looking forward to talking with you here. Uh, so why don't you uh, start out by just sharing what you do at, at Culture RX and, and your, your background there? So CultureX, we are the um, experts in the results-only work environment. So we're the only organization that can actually facilitate that type of change. I'm a master trainer with CultureRx, so I am responsible for engaging with our our customers and our clients, uh, leading them through facilitations with regard to this type of change. And we use adaptive change strategies and techniques. And then also I'm responsible for supporting them on that continued journey after the on-site sessions or in most recent times after virtual sessions. Uh, so essentially my, my biggest role is to, is to help facilitate uh, real workplace culture change with the organizations that are looking to shift their mindsets and, and change the way that uh, people work and live. So uh, you recently gave the opening keynote at our Return on Creativity, Return on uh, Return to Work event a few weeks ago. So it, it was it was great. I encourage any any of the listeners here. It's on YouTube now. Um, definitely check it out. Um, and you mentioned in your in your keynote that control is a key factor that's been brought to light during the pandemic. Um, so I, I wanted to look at that in a, in a couple different ways. Okay. So first. Um, you know, employees are in the spotlight as we're going through what's, you know, some people are calling the great resignation. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting phenomenon to have what we're going through in, you know, we've got economic issues, we've got a global pandemic. And yet, you know, we have this, this work shortage, you know, do you, do you think this shift um, in control from, uh, you know, employees, taking, reconsidering their job options, taking back some of that power. Do you, do you think that was inevitable and simply accelerated by this, by the pandemic and everything that's going on? Or do you think it was unique to this time and, and place that we're in? Well, I, I think, and from, from my experience, what I've always seen with the organizations and, and specifically, you know, when we refer to organizations, we're, we're obviously talking about people. And I, I think in that, in that regard, control has, has always been an issue. And, and I, I want to just kind of expand out what I mean by control. It's essentially 
who has the the, the choice and, and the options uh, in front of them? Who who actually can design those choices and options? And a lot of the times, for a lot of employees, uh, it's the employer that sets uh, the the gold standard for you know when and where and how you get your job done, which is obviously going to affect how you live your life. So I think what the the, the pandemic has done is it at least shined a, a tremendously bright light on the technological infrastructure that has been in place for decades, which does al allows many millions of employees uh, to work in a different way. And I'll just leave it at different. Um, so then I think when the employees started to recognize that they could work in a different way, they also started to realize their own capabilities and abilities with regard to their own means and approaches to project management and time management and, and started to realize that, you know, the traditional way of being managed uh, was not necessarily something that was a requirement. It could absolutely be a benefit. So, you know, when we're talking about mentoring or coaching. Of course, that can be a, a benefit to, to assisting somebody to achieve goals and, and to continue to progress. So I think this, this is unique in the sense that the light forced people to not be able to look away, but I feel the control issue, that has been an ongoing issue for, for as long as people have been working. Yeah, and I think along, along the, the lines of control as well, we see some employers are putting out the mandate of 100% return to the office, although in recent weeks, uh, that's gotten shifted a little bit and in some cases just because of flare-ups in the um, in, in cases and everything. But um, how much control should companies have over, you know, how, when, and where their employees work? I mean, you know, kind of touching back on the last point, like, what, what do you think is the determining factor here on, on that, on that dynamic? Well, and, you know, at CultureX, and when we talk about the results only work environment, in that question, in that phrasing right there, is, is fundamentally what we feel is is part of the problem here. Um, because what we feel the greatest responsibility of an organization, of leadership, of management, uh, is to get clear about what the work actually is. So rather than focusing on the how and the when and the where, um, which again, we can, you know, that, that can part, be parlayed into trusting people to make that decision. And we'll probably talk about that a little bit later. But when we talk about, you know, the control of the companies that have, really companies, they're not in place to own your time. They're in place to own your results. So when they can get crystal clear about identifying, truly identifying why you were hired, why you're actually receiving the paycheck that you are, and then getting clear about the scope of the work you're being asked to actually deliver on. And that means getting clear about what success looks like, what the metrics are going to be, what the timeline is, what the deadlines are. Then it's, it's no longer an either or in terms of a mandate. It's an either or in terms of a choice made by the employee. Is the office the best way? It can, can the office be used as a resource to most efficiently and effectively deliver on the results I'm being asked to do? Or can I achieve that? sitting in the park or in my bed or while I'm riding the train, you know, what have you. So it's not necessarily uh, the, the focus. What we suggest is to consider 
moving the focus away from time and location and first getting clear about what the actual work is. For industries or roles where that's a little bit different. So, you know, when we look at restaurants and, you know, other hospitality workers and, and things like that, do you, I mean, do you think that there's a relationship between, you know, shortages in those, in those types of roles where maybe the, the remote work option is simply not an option, you know, healthcare too, you could say the same. Um, Do you see a relationship between shortages there and what's going on? In other words, is it um, when there's, when there's the ability for an employee to have more control, maybe they're drawn more to the, those types of roles? Like what, what do you think, what do you think is going on there? Greg, I I absolutely love the way that you kind of dovetailed that at the end, because, you know, when we talk about what motivates, you know, a human being and, and more specifically in the context of their employment, there is going to be a tremendous amount of variables. You know, yeah. the, the beliefs are that money are, you know, money is, 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 is the end all game to motivate people. And that's just simply not borne out in research at all. Um, are there people that are at the end of the day, their compensation is a number one on their list? Of course. Um, but when we start to drill down and start to understand what how changes can affect even the dynamics around motivation then that's when we can start to look at these so when we look at those particular industries you know where we one of the first projects i was involved with was uh, an nih federal intervention with a resident care facility so it was 15 different locations in the new england states and this is 24-hour care uh, uh resident care uh and people of all kinds of needs and you know, that, that is, you know, you mentioned this, and that is an industry where, you know, the belief is remote work wouldn't work. And, and to a certain, re, to a certain extent, you know, depending on what your role is, that's true. But when you're talking about direct patient care, I understand you can't take care of a patient if you're not physically in front of them. However, what was a game changer uh, for a lot of these uh, employees as we started to go move through this intervention and this facilitation was the shift away from moving away from a schedule mindset. So somebody else scheduling you here and instead pulling back and getting a clear understanding of the needs of the residents and what that looks like in terms of timing and actually developing a more collaborative approach to coverage. So this is where, you know, you might have, and again, we have to take into account hours and not going into overtime and so on and so forth. Like people have, you know, minimum hours they have to meet, they can't uh, go into overtime. But when people started to have more control of, you know what, I've, I, I can't, there was a, there was a nurse that came to me. This is one of the biggest reasons why I'm in this. I do what I do. A nurse came to me and said, you know, after, after we've gone through months of this, she said, you know, you changed my life. I'm like, Whoa, time out. <laughs> I didn't change your life. I was, I danced in front of you for a little bit and said, let's think differently. And, uh, and you started to really do the hard work. And I said, well, can you just expand on that? And she said, well, you know what? Uh, it wasn't about money for me. It wasn't about more time off. It wasn't about um, um, upward mobility, right? She wasn't looking to to become a manager or a leader. And she really liked being um, a nurse. Um, it was after looking at the needs of the residents, working with her fellow employees, ensuring safetyness, ensuring uh, everything was legal and cost effective. She was able to, with her employees, establish a different sense of coverage. And so she was able to walk her daughter to the school bus in the morning. 
that was now I'm going to say that was it. And that's going to kind of demean it. But that that was it for her. She was looking for that window, which is a personal window. Um, so she was not looking for this big upheaval. But when you get clear about what the work really is, the, 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 the obstacles that people have to overcome are their beliefs about the way work should be. So I think in those industries, I, I do believe that obviously compensation does play a role, but I think culture plays a tremendous role as well. So I think when people have more control over how and how they can work, that is going to be a game change for a lot of people. Now, do I think it's going to be the end-all answer for everybody? Absolutely not. There's going to be some people who say, I, I don't want to go back to work because I'm, I, maybe they're making more money doing something else. And I respect that. But I, what I have seen is when you give people the opportunity and trust them um, to say, okay, here's what we need. Here's what we need you to do. You go and do it. Now, now the accountability also shifts 100% back to that person because they can't look at you now and say, well, if you didn't, and I, but them and the organization said, nope, you made this decision. This was your choice. So I think that's a game change as well. Just following this thread on control, but also bringing in, uh, you know, this, how companies kind of view work and, and the value of work. You know, a lot of companies are making an argument. I've, I've heard this, I've read it as well. They're making the argument for in-person work because there's this, there's this idea of, well, you know, when you're walking to the coffee machine and you pass somebody in the hallway, like the, some of those like in-between moments are where innovation and creativity happen. Um, you know, I don't, I'm sure that does happen. I'll, I'll leave some of my my personal commentary out of this, but because I want I want to hear your thoughts on it. But you know how do how do organizations get around the you know if those in between moments are effective and and do build culture and and creativity and everything? How does an organization that isn't going back to 100 uh, percent you know in person work? How do they get around that and still innovate and and be creative and have a good culture? And I, I love this. And Greg, I mean, I'm always, I'm a, I'm, I'm a learner. So, I mean, I'm always interested in hearing your input and insight as well. Uh, but, I, I, you know, I'm going to default to what I think is something brilliant that my colleague, um, Elliot Cole Nibs, uh, a fellow master trainer at CultureX, um, has to say about this. And, and because a lot of the times in these types of conversations, um, you know, it's, it, again, it's, it's just this either or approach. Yeah. And what he came up with is like, if you truly believe that the in-person possibility may lead to innovative and creative thinking, I mean, he used the, the example of that would essentially mean then why don't people just ride the elevator at work then all day long <laughs> right. in, in hopes in hopes of having that that one-off aha moment. And, and that's what's interesting about creativity and innovation. I mean, how many times... You know, have you been in the shower, uh, you know, or driving and something just hit you? You know what I mean? It just, I mean, that's the insight is not something that is, is manufactured, right? So um, I, I think, and, and I'll, and, you know, when, when people who want, maybe want to poke holes, and, and I love that because, like, again, I'll, I'll always say I will default to being a learner. Um, I am, you know, I live in Northeastern Pennsylvania. My colleagues live in Minnesota. So we have zero possibility of ever running into right, each other. Right anywhere um but how many times i email and text you know and just you know depending on the time of day or call and be like oh my gosh i've, I've got something like my inspiration uh, comes from you know with within me now again i understand 
the possibility of having a conversation that might lead. Yeah, I, I understand. That's why we say if people feel that the office space or the office building can be a resource for them to more effectively, more creatively do their job, absolutely, then, then choose it. But what, what we're trying to say is look at that as, a, as an option, as, as a tool rather than a default to, to uh, produce whatever it is you're doing, whether it be an actual result or innovation and creativity. Yeah, I like that. And I, I mean, I would use the analogy of meetings in general, which I think there are just too many meetings in the day and in most organizations. I think that the downside is when people wait, they're like, okay, well, I'm going to run into this person in the hall or get coffee with them. Or, you know, I'm, we're going to have a meeting to discuss this. I'm going to shut my brain off about this topic until the meeting. Like, what in the world are we doing? Right. You know, like to, right. to your point, I've had better ideas while I'm driving than sitting in a conference room with, you know, with 20 other people um, because I was open to that, <laughs> to an idea at a certain point, at, you know, at any and, point in time. And Greg, if I can just speak to that, and this is, so, you know, I, I, I am a master trainer, but I'm also a, a college, uh, college level psychology instructor. So this is the psyche coming out of me, but there's, there's, to your point, there's absolute research that says, and this is something that I, I try to actually, uh, you know, live out in my classrooms. But when you put 30 people in a room, this is why I love when people say we're having, a, when a meeting is about brainstorming, I'm like, well, good luck with that. Um, because when you put 30 people in a room, depending on the personalities of all those people, right, and depending on the pressure or what might be going on at that particular moment in time, the chances of you getting 30, forget 30 unique ideas, but 30 contributions is extremely rare. You might get four, five, six people, and then everybody else going, yeah, I totally agree with what he said, right? But if you were able to find ways to truly engage people on a one-to-one, -one, which again, before people say, ha, ah, that seems like face-to-face, -face, but that could be a phone call, an email, a text message, an instant, whatever, right? So, mm -hmm. But if you give those, if you give the individual an opportunity to really think on what they're being asked to, to lend their perspective on, you might be surprised. Again, they may not be original ideas, but the likelihood of you getting a contribution will increase rather than 30 people in a room being asked, okay, what's our next big, you know, our next big idea. This kind of leads into the, the, the next question here. So, you know, in your keynote, um, back at the, the July event, you mentioned a term, which I, I thought was, uh, was really meaningful, um, meaningful collaboration. Um, and, you know, can you elaborate what you mean by that? And, sure. and you know, how do people within organizations strive for that? And, and, and I appreciate that. And I think, I think one of the, the, the struggles here, and I'll go back to beliefs about the way work should happen, uh, happen. I think that's what gets in the way of meaningful collaboration. So what we're all familiar with in terms of collaboration is, and to your point, what you just mentioned earlier, is we default to have meetings because we feel, hey, that's the best way to put right you know, people together to get things done. And we just simply, again, the research just shows that's just simply not the case. Now, again, do meetings have their place? Absolutely. We're talking about defaulting to a meeting as a means to achieve whatever it is you're trying to achieve. And to that point about multitasking within meetings, I love when I, I do sessions and I have these conversations about the moment you get into a meeting, if the first thing you do is open up your laptop and start catching up on that work you have to do or doing email, you're, you're not multitasking. I mean, again, psychologically speaking, you are not. For, for all your listeners, I got much love for you who think they're good multitaskers. You are not. Uh, your brain is not designed that way. It's simply just bouncing back and forth. So when people say, oh, no, 
when I'm in a meeting and answering emails, my ear is specially tuned to pick up on an idea that's specific to me. And that's when I'll, it doesn't work that way. So multitasking doesn't allow us to really get it. And, and meetings don't necessarily allow us to do the, the meaningful collaboration. So what I mean by that is when you get clear about what the work is and context is everything. So I never want to dehumanize human interaction. I mean, Greg, I'm a hugger. This pandemic crushed me with regard to that. So I'm glad we're starting to get back to that. I can actually hug people. Um, yeah. So I'm not dehumanizing uh, what it means to, to be in an organization and be part of a team. But when I talk about meaningful collaboration, I'm talking about when you're clear about what the work is. So you actually know the scope of the work, like I said earlier, um, what success is going to look like, what the metrics are going to be, what the metrics are that are going to be used to measure that, uh, what the timeline is, what the deadline is. When you know that, then you start to base your needs for efficiency and effectiveness around objectiveness. So rather than just defaulting to let's have our weekly meeting, well, why? Well, because that's what we do. Well, see, that's not meaningful because how many people do you have in that meeting that are actually contributing? that are actually gaining something. And if they weren't in that meeting, how would that negatively impact their performance? So that's where we talk about the meaningful, the meaningful piece of it. We know what forced fun is in organizations, right? What's forced fun? Well, let's get everybody into the break room. And we're gonna sing a team building uh, exercise song. Again, I mean, you know, we're adults. So what we talk, when, we, when we talk about meaningful collaboration, we mean that it's tied to the objectiveness of the work, of what needs to actually be accomplished, and that that collaboration has a metric to it as well. That could be measured, okay, you know, this was something that just, you know, when we talk about meetings, meetings should have outcomes. Everybody that's invited to a meeting should have a clearly defined outcome as to why they're being invited to the meeting. And, and that's why to contribute to supporting meaningful collaboration, one of our guideposts for uh, the results-only work environment is that every meeting is optional. And that's where people's heads just explode because the belief is that every meeting is necessary and we just absolutely know that's not the case. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, one, one last question before we wrap up here. Uh, we touched on this at the very beginning, trust uh, in, in organizations. So, you know, trust is, is central to really to any working relationship, but, you know, to a more remote distributed way of working, you know, there is that you can't look over somebody's shoulder and make sure they're not playing solitaire or whatever <laughs> and stuff like that. Right. Um, you know, how, how do organizations start building the type of trust that really works, you know, not, not micromanaging, not, you know, tracking people's eyeballs on, on screens, but like, and that you know, is really, scary to me. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it happens. I but, know. But, uh, but you know, how, how do they, how does an organization start this? Because, you know, some, I think there's some, definitely some success stories within, you know, within the shift to remote work of companies that didn't miss a beat and, right. and whatever, but there's others where, you know, it's like their culture is kind of getting in the way. Like how to, how, where does somebody start? To, to move in the right direction. Greg, I love the way you put that again. I mean, you hit it right on the head. The culture is getting in the way. And when we talk about a command and control culture, that does not speak to trust. So I think, you know, and this is this is the heavy lift with regard to adaptive change and, and the results-only work environment is that we are talking about a mindset shift. So people have to really do some personal reflection about their own beliefs around work. And I, I've said this a bunch and it's just, it's, it's absolutely core to, to, to recognizing uh, what needs to change, but then also being able to move through that change. And so in, in a way, 
we have to move away from uh, this trust is earned uh, premise and, and just recognize that, you know, you give trust and then based on that relationship in, of, of trust, um, you in a professional relationship, you use accountability, objective accountability then to hold people to account for that trust. So when we talk about trust and building and strengthening or nurturing trust, it's essentially getting clear about why you have this particular adult in this particular environment and then giving them the re ensuring that they have the resources that they need creating a psychologically safe environment for that person to ask questions make suggestions uh, put forth ideas without the fear of being demonized like, you know i've had people i, I remember when i do sessions i had I, I, I remember it like it happened yesterday I got an eye roll when I said that. I was like, you know, can you can you tell me what what what's wrong? And she said, you know what? I had a great idea two years ago, and they just shut it down. So now I'm done thinking. I'm like, See? and this is what happens. It's like once you once you squash somebody's you know ability to to share something, then they no longer feel trusted or valued to actually participate in a meaningful way. So I think trust is something that is is actually shown by actions and behaviors as well as words because a lot of times people say we trust our employees and then they install eyeball tracing software right. that does not jive all right so i think trusting people is basically saying this is what we expect of you we trust you to get it done we are here to support you but at the end of the day we also have these agreed upon metrics to in, in order to hold you to account so that we can ensure that we are serving um our customer and we're serving our teams yeah well, Michael, thanks so much for joining. Uh, for those listening, what's the best way for them to keep up with you and what you're doing? Uh, for the results only work environment, please just check us out at goro.com. And, you know, of course, I'm out there as well. MichaelBarata.org is a place that you can find me. And um, But uh, I, I'm, I'm just grateful to be uh, on this uh, podcast with you. And I'm excited about what Roe can do because I absolutely have seen it. It changes not just the way businesses work, but it absolutely changes the way people um, live as well. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, I'd like to thank Michael Barada, Master Trainer at Culture Rx, for joining the show. To learn more about Return on Creativity brought to you by the Agile World and Arlington Economic Development, please go to returnoncreativity.com. Thanks for listening to the Agile World with Greg Kilstrom. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the Agile World Podcast, brought to you by Tech Systems. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can learn more and get a copy of my latest book, The Agile Workforce, from my website at theagile.world.